Criminal Magic, Chapter 18. Wednesday, 2359, GMT-5. In the face of a transformation, you may sometimes find yourself both predator and prey. Rafe Kohler claws the sheets, his sleeping mind coiled in a panic of fear. The dream is on him, but this time is different. As he looks into the mirror and realizes that the face is his, but he is not in it, a slow smile curls the lips of the reflected image. Rafe's spine tingles, his head feels about to explode, his hips rise and his body seizes into an arc as his heels practically dig holes in the thin mattress. In the dream, the face in the mirror begins to laugh, and the voice belongs to the other. Rafe's fingers sweat blood. He opens his mouth. His horror at what he shows is clear. If he can say it, none of it will be true, he thinks. But he cannot say it. And he knows the face looking back at him will wake up in his place, and he will have to stay here, looking into the mirror, empty of himself, unable to leave the bathroom, or let go of the dream, ever. Rafe screams into his pillow until hyperventilation deprives his body of its last tenuous connection to consciousness. Thursday, 9.25, GMT-8. Kali rocks on his stool, hands shuffling, fingers alternately stroking and striking as he stares attentively at the keyboard in front of him. Fucking ancient technology, he mutters, Insight pathways, finger pad attached electrode centers. Why the hell? Ah, fuck it. He has to find the coordinator to warn answer. And he can do it if he is able to work his way back to that first signal bounce he picked up in Portland during the broken snap. Now that feels like a coon's age ago. Just get that stream back and follow it back to its origins, house presumably. And if coordinator used a house sat cell once... She'll have another one she's used since. It's a huge connect-the-dots game, and Kali is an adept player. Two hours have passed since he and John sat in the great hemispherical catafalque of the debriefing dome, listening and watching as Hedda Jornley once again probed Dana's memories. What they saw put the spurs to Kali's sense of urgency. After several grueling sessions, Hedda has the pusher EEPROM technology dialed to the point where she can reliably sort the permeable welter of aspiration and belief that is the human experience into somewhat discrete elements. Privately, she holds out great expectations for how this tool can be put to work in other applications. But for now, it is enough that Hedda believes she can segregate genuine memories from the rest of the jumbled experiential working draft of being. And what she's separated out of that 28-year-old subject's consciousness is very disturbing. Fragments of days, Dana at a lab bench surrounded by intensely focused workers, an underground building, keypad entry, figures of authority, minders. They do not work. They only seem to watch. Hedda has found that a sepia wash colors some recollections. It certainly seems to indicate something, perhaps anxiety. A man Kali recognizes from his distant past appears in several such episodes. Rafe Kohler. His nodding, owl-like presence glides through Dana's recollections as if the man were mounted on a wheeled carriage, drawn along on tracks. Angry scenarios, including co-workers, images of labs, dominate much of the space in Dana's memory, now off-limits to ordinary recall, 
owing to her concussion. Then there is what seems to be a confrontation with a small group of people. More minders? During this episode, Kohler stands like a shadow in the background, but the expression he wears is all the information anyone would need to determine that this is the face of an enemy. Details, running at night, escape, pursuit, hiding, answer in the rain, the botched snap, attempted murder, the fall, all these find their place in the record of events slipping into view screens where their meaning can be interpreted by the three silent witnesses seated beside her in the laboratory. After an hour of fussing, dialing in, phantom piggybacking, cloaking account identities, employing various graft and ECM measures, and using up favors left uncollected for times like this, Kali manages to break into an encrypted line for one of the house upper directorates. He rings it. Hello? The clear tone of voice tells Kali his call has not been anticipated. SMVP44 lowercase v is all Kali says. Anything else, any effort at dialogue, will almost certainly be met by dead air on the other end, and he'll be right back at the beginning with another wall thrown up to keep him from reaching his target. Repeat? The single word is meant to convey nothing, but Kali's graphic phase analyzer spikes into the yellow, telling him the correspondent to his call is experiencing a strong constriction of the airway affecting the larynx. Mood shift. S-M-V-P-4-4, lowercase v, Kali repeats. He glances down, noting that his own biomonitor is reporting a bit more bottom-end tonal variation than he wants to let go. Kali exhales a silent, meditative breath, a tick-not-ton, the cue to be mindful. Yes, listening, comes the flat vanilla tone. Target phasing lower. Now we're on the same page, just two machines talking. Kali Gray, Newtown, Portland. Look me up. You'll find me. Your Northwest coordinator was dispatched to meet me a few days back. I offloaded something she needed. If she's still with us, it's rather urgent we rehook. There's just the briefest of pauses. A moment, yeah? Kali watches his screens. He's deliberately left every gate swinging wide open so their traces can flow quickly back to him. He eyes the clock. So what can we do for you, Mr. Gray? The stopwatch shows 73 seconds. Really alert out there. Must have all the newest shit. Here's the pitch. Your girl coordinator and her associates are probably walking into a bad play. We've come upon some intelligence here that gives us the impression they could eat it if they stay blind. He shuts up and then, as an afterthought, you got a name or just me? Ovi, Mr. Gray. You may call me Ovi. Are you willing to wait a few moments? I feel it would be useful to make some inquiries on your behalf. We seem to have a common interest in the security of the individuals you've mentioned. Or we could ring you back if you like. All very pleasant. Kali monitors say the party on the other end of the line has adjusted completely to the situation. No, fine, uh, I'm good, uh, I'll wait. There is no reply. Kali shifts his earpiece just slightly and slumps back in the chair. He tosses his legs up on the counter and switches on some sound wave impedance filters just in case. Amazing, putting a hacker on hold. Very tasty, these modern houseboys.
Friday, 12.27, GMT-8. Burying the dead is backbreaking work, and an unrelenting sun saps the will of even the most ardent villagers. Answer stands upright and sweeps a wreath of sweat from his forehead with his arm. Back aches, head rings, should drink more water. Men and women pass into and out of the informal graveyard carved from the jungle, all moving with a speed of action prompted only by necessity. They are reluctant deliverymen, pushing wheelbarrows loaded with the ad hoc sculpture of rigor mortis. Luz and coordinator are off to his left, digging a large hole. Individuals will not be memorialized in this place. That honor has fallen only to Jack North, Rene, and Ramon. Anonymity belongs to everyone here, even the living with their faces hidden behind rag masks meant to hold off the stench of decay. And the dead? He supposes they may have had names, but frankly, the stench of putrefaction permeates air, sodden by a humidity that reminds Answer why he has never been a big fan of the jungle. Flights of biting flies swarm at head level, clouding the air with a shimmering gray screen of bloodthirsty mouths. Nobody's idea of a picnic. Answer watches the workers, believing that although the villagers are glad to see the last of ancient enemies, they are uncomfortable as anyone would be handling the bodies of those so recently among the living. But reasonable reluctance is leavened somewhat by the satisfying knowledge that with each pit dug, each shovel of dirt returned to its place atop a long-bones cadaver. These are the waste pits of strangers. All of these are not of this people. This is only a place for those that used to walk among the villagers as action-direct workers, and others like them who have preyed for so long upon the youth, the future wealth of the Uwa. These are waste creatures who have received what they deserved. Among the train of villagers coming and going laden with the bodies of the dead, Answer senses a certain tranquility, a sense of peaceful detachment. He pauses with his foot planted on the shovel. It seems fair to him. The Uwa are a famously peaceful people, but that trait does not relieve them of the ability to feel a certain satisfaction at the devastating visit the gods, whose patience with evil seems to have reached exhaustion, have paid to their ancient enemy. Kohler is gone, nowhere to be found. He seems to have simply walked away from the village during the attack, leaving everything right where he'd left it. The son of a bitch had something to do with all this. I can smell it, coordinator muttered to herself as they plowed through his possessions. That guy is wrong, just bent. He is taken by the Canaan priest, Lewis said. He is not finished with this business. We will see him again. Since the night of the attack, coordinator has gotten her bearings. There is an aspect of herself she sometimes thinks of as the building manager, the rational analyzer, and proactive coper that's kept her head in the game all these years. For a few minutes the night before last, that part of her personality felt almost overwhelmed, rocked by the onslaught of visual hallucinations and extreme behavior all around. At the end of the day, though, the building manager doesn't ever get shaken for long. In retrospect, and even under the manager's influence, Cordinary has come to believe that the majority, if not all, of the previous evening's apparently magical occurrences could be related to stress effects. It started with finding the old man. When the three of them worked their way back through the village, looking for survivors and counting the dead in the morning, 
They'd come upon his body in the street. When they first saw him from behind and at some distance, Coordinator thought he might be just sitting there, exhausted. She called out to him, but he was dead as a stone. He looked as if he might be simply meditating, sitting sunk on his heels with his eyes closed. The look on his face, a serene smile that conveyed a whimsical satisfaction, gave her an eerie feeling that made her want to move away from him as quickly as possible. But she could deal with all that. It was the thing with Luz. Her bending over and taking that small bag out from under the old man's body that put a twist in coordinator's wrap. She didn't even have to watch Luz open it to know what its contents were. The power of vision. For an instant, she is transported into the past, sitting with Luz and answer on the porch of the house in Sueska, listening to the little lady telling about her absurdist fairy tale vision of the old man beside the trail. She sees them backing uphill, surrounded by a flood of animals. She remembers it all down to the bag. Luz didn't open it there in the street, but she didn't have to. They all knew what was inside, three small objects. And if that wasn't enough, there was what Luz said when Coordinator demanded to know what the fuck was going on. Who the hell were those people, those things, she demanded as she stood in the middle of the street, her clothes stiff with the accumulated salt of blood and sweat. Those were all white people. What in the name of fucking hell was that? Then, Luz told Coordinator and Answer what she knew about the Cayman, about the ancient rivalry between the Jaguar and the Cayman cults, about the blood ritual and the dreams of Ramon. She told them what Ramon had confided about Kohler's soul being taken captive by the Cayman priest. And the more she said, the more it made sense to Coordinator. Luz went on about the dream she'd seen in the dreaming place, telling how an alligator-shaped person takes over Kohler and escapes with his identity. No proof, no body, no Kohler to question. In the back of Coordinator's mind, she was reviewing the documents she'd found on Kohler's machines. Some of them were so encrypted, she hadn't been able to get into them, and she'd flipped those to house for their crypto breakers to fuss with. But there were others, the trail of money and front companies, all down the West Coast. If any of what Luz was recounting was true, then what it suggested was chilling. What if Kohler really was a pawn, conscripted to serve? By the time she was done listening, even the building manager was fully creeped out. A subtle, out-of-context vibration on her hip breaks into her reverie. At such an out-of-place sensation standing here atop the fresh graves of people she'd only just met that it takes Coordinator a couple of seconds to get connected to the fact that it's the secure sat-cell line from house. Man, I am out of it, she thinks, as she snaps the ear cuff in place and logs on. Yep, she snaps into the throat mic as she sinks her shovel into the loose soil and heaves another spadeful into the hole containing Rene, Ramon, and Jack. Leaving off in the middle of the work to cover some administrative bullshit just wouldn't be right. Ah, coordinator, good to hear your voice. Are you all right? Your breathing sounds a bit strained. The voice on the other end sounds suitably remote, every few syllables tinged with a slight digital distortion, but it's Ovi, unmistakably. Yeah, well, Ovi, she says, heaving the heavy soil into the pit, 
I've been a bit busy down here. Coordinator stands upright and takes a slug of water from a bottle Luz is holding out. She gazes around at the bizarre Jonestown setting and catches sight of an incredibly ancient woman standing beside a wheelbarrow, heaving the dismembered remains of several blown-up bad guys into a trench. She subconsciously elevates the single-sentence report she's just issued to the top of her greatest understatements of all time list. I understand completely, Obi says, smooth as always. If you'll hang on for just a moment, I need to conference you. Conference? Conference who? Jesus, Ovi. I'm in the middle of a graveyard. Seriously, digging holes to toss people into. If you think I have one winged shit to give about, but the line is already there and the void dedicated to waiting, there's a moment of silence. And then a barely audible double ping on the line, followed by Kieran's voice sliding down mellifluously into her ear from the heavens. My dear, my dear, Jesus, I'm sure Ovi meant no harm in asking about your health. We are distressed to hear that you have been exposed to such extremes of violence and hope your emotional equilibrium has remained stable. Keep in mind that we did not request you stay in touch. Look, coordinator's tone reflects her testy temperament. If you're calling me in the middle of a fucking war zone to slap him on the wrist for not buzzing home by nine, then I really don't have time for this shit. I had parents, Karen, and as you might recall, they are dead. It's in my file. We had a serious blowdown here last night, and the cleanup isn't exactly pleasant. Know what I mean? Yes, of course. Forgive the brusqueness, if you will. Karen pauses before going on. He is nothing, if not diplomatic. As I said, we regret that you have been exposed to violence. I am certain you have much to do, and I don't wish to take time away from your labors there for any more than time is necessary. But I must ask you to remember that we are dependent upon you for information, and this information may have widespread ramifications on communities outside our own. So if you feel up to it, would you be so kind as to give us an update? The coordinator takes a deep breath, reminds herself never to underestimate this man's drive to get what he's after, if it seemed essential to his goal, this son of a bitch would try to get a dead man to rewrite his own will. I was on with Ovi, getting some ENCMs piped into Kohler's mainframe. You must have seen the data we got there. Our boy Kohler is seriously bent and into something way offline. There's no doubt in my mind that he's the organizer of the attempted hits on myself and answer, and he's moving the force behind some other things. Maybe very big things, very big things that I don't fully understand as yet. And then we lost contact, Kieran leads. Right. I was working with the mainframe when Answer arrived, which turned out to be a good thing because all of a sudden the whole goddamn jungle started heading downtown. And I'm talking about the whole jungle. Dogs, cats, bears, you name it. That carnival preceded the arrival of some tall, skin-wearing types with spears who wandered down the hill with the objective of trying to kill everyone from out of town. And if you can imagine from my little summary here, I didn't have a lot of time for idle chit-chat with the home off. A new voice comes on the line, reminding coordinator of the quality of shortwave when she was a child. Bits of sound strung out in the airwaves, aspect of each word lingering like hints toward the completion of a puzzle. Kohler? Did, did, did you get Kohler? 
Who is that? Coordinator asks. Collie Gray, the voice says. You're Portland Angel. Angel, my ass, she grumps. Without your so-called help, I wouldn't have gotten to our man answer in time, and that would have saved me being up to my elbows in shit right now. I must contradict you there, Karen interjects his voice, ever level but authoritatively correct. I'm afraid you have been in this particular mess in any event, even without Mr. Gray's assistance. Collie shoves his way back into the match. Okay, this is loads of fun and all, but... Nobody's answered my question. Did you get Kohler? The short answer is no, Coordinator spits curtly. Until Wednesday night, we didn't have anything to support a confrontation with him, let alone a thought pops into her head. Speaking of which, how do you come to know where we are or who Rafe Kohler is in the first place? And what the fuck business is it of yours altogether? The very reason for our call, Kieran blends smoothly back into the flow. In addition to the data you collected from Amazon Direct Action Machines, Mr. Gray has some very compelling information to pass along that may help us in considering our next series of actions. Mr. Gray? Right, Collie says. Well, you probably already know this, but we here in Newtown have been fighting a nasty little turf war with the local Hindu groups, and to get the job to fall on their side, they've been throwing these enhanced pushers at us right and left. So recently, we um, ended up in possession of one of these characters and were able to persuade him to spend a little of his free time with us in the lab so we could get a better idea of what makes him tick. Dr. Jorn Lee and our staff conducted some pretty extensive testing, chem, bio, psych profiles. Whoa! Coordinator cuts in. Hedda Jorn Lee? Uh-huh. Collie continues dismissing the interruption. Turns out that these pushers are rigged up with a gizmo that alters their primary personality in certain core ways. Kind of a primitive, reprogrammable wetware. So, Hedda made a copy of the mechanism and tuned it up with her own outcomes in mind. Yeah, okay, coordinator says. Could we get back to the part where I begin to care about all that? We got this girl who wandered into town here a while back, Kali continues, as if nothing's been said. Young woman, really, very bright, obviously skilled, but with a nasty bump on the head and no memory. Or practically none, anyway. Once we told her about Hedda's investigation, she agrees to act as a test subject for the trials. We figured it was our luck to stumble on a very high-quality candidate for the work, so we started doing some data mining on her memory. Coordinator is incredulous. Uh, Wait a minute. You snatched some wetware from the bad guys, had a genius adapt it, and now you're... What, reading minds with the thing? Jesus. Fascinating, no? Karen smooths over the rust spots. Please continue, Mr. Gray. Hedda wouldn't call it that, Collie says. She doesn't appreciate having her work tossed into the sci-fi bin. But yeah, actually, from a brute force perspective, that's basically it. What's really interesting about this is not so much the process, but what we've discovered inside this girl Dana's memory by using it. Two key images relevant to this conversation have surfaced. First, answer. Second, Kohler. What? Together? Coordinator is shocked. The building manager heads toward the exit. No, 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 Kali Collie Not like that. Mary seems to accrete in cells, so as you find your way into a person's mind, sometimes you get the last first and the first last, way more like an inventory accounting system than a library. First, we excavated a visual memory of answer. 
the apparent time and place, puts her in the collective team with you, Answer, and the other man in the takedown of Harrison Lynn in Portland. Holy shit, coordinator murmurs. Third station was a woman, but I never saw her. I thought we'd established that both of the others were taken out. Apparently an unsuccessful attempt in her case, Kieran says. Imperfect intelligence can occasionally be a boon. And Kohler? Right, Kali proceeds. So far as we can determine, this memory was formed during an earlier interval of the girl's life, before the Lynn incident. Dana appears to have been working in some kind of a lab complex, and Kohler makes multiple appearances there. High security, the visuals imply lots of internal workplace conflict. Well, that clicks, coordinator says. He was working some seriously underground project from down here, had at least one hidden location up Maracaibo Way. All the dead here are foreigners, pretty young, men and women. Lots of them used to work for Action Direct. Somehow, he recruited a significant little army of them. Hmm. Then there's the money. I've managed to track a substantial revenue transfer and management structure to the Pacific Northwest, so it makes sense that he'd have a secondary location out of the country for whatever project he's got going. With the kind of money he appears to have been moving around, finances would have been no problem. Any location cues in the data? It certainly looks Pacific Northwest, Holly says. For now, that's just a guess. We're trying to find the people who brought her in. We're also looking to get data on the other people we can see in the lab. If we can locate any of them, we can find ourselves better armed in the location of things. Well, shit. Coordinator's voice is softer than ordinary her tone reflecting the moment of imbalance she's fallen into. Can this mind scanner be used on anybody? Sure, Kali laughs. Anybody we can make stand still long enough to stuff full of sodium pentothal. You know, volunteers only. Okay, wise ass. Coordinator's exhausted exasperation shows through. I asked for a reason. We didn't get our hands on color, but we did manage to ice the only surviving member of his squad. The locals call them longbones. And even though there was a strong ambition on the part of some folks here to send this boy on along with the rest of his buds, we made sure he stayed alive. I was trying to think of a way his live weight would be justified considering the demands on his future here locally, and it seems to me like you might have come up with a damn good place to start. Well, Kali says, at this stage the gear isn't portable, so we'd have to work on the subject here in Portland. No problem, coordinator begins. We'll just... Kieran interrupts with a surgical deafness. Yes. Well, very interesting developments indeed. House will no doubt be happy to coordinate the logistics, Mr. Gray. Expect a call from us in the next half hour. Coordinator, we will reconnect with you momentarily. Thank you both. The sat cell line drives off, disconnecting Collie before he can express further pleasure or interest in what has been suggested and setting Coordinator abruptly back into the present physical reality. What the hell was all that about, she thinks, and why cut me off? Friday, 9.40, GMT. Rain. Still stands, arms outstretched, and drinks in the heavens. Within the body that was Rafe Kohler, a conflicting surge of emotional reaction to the soaking pulls like a tide, unable to make up its mind whether to rush ashore or ebb. Rafe hated getting wet, but still was born to bathe in the sky-draining deluges common to the Amazon. Standing alongside the battered land cruiser, 
in one of the intestinal convolutions of canyon that segregates Oregon's cascades, the sorcerer draws in a deep breath. Moist air saturates his lungs. The biting twinge of cedar and fir invade his nostrils as a sleet-sweeping wind pushes the chill of coastal ridges deep into his muscles, still exults in his dominance, his practical ownership of this new body. He is, in every sense, arrived in the new world. Of course there are drawbacks, unexpected aspects of this new habitation that he has not anticipated. Worst among them is the lingering presence of the Kohler aura, shudders of revulsion, preference and taste, the lingering bias of perception that personifies the underlayment that is Kohler, occasionally emerge from the depths of still, bursting into an otherwise placid surface. Corporeal exchange is an extremely new experience for still. Attachment, the ability to invade and take over the mind of another to subordinate that person's will, these are well-known shamanic practices accepted among the Yapo, San Pedro, and Ayahuasca users of the Amazon as commonplace realities. But to actually invade the body of another, fully displacing that persona, and taking up residence in that new body as a result of the forfeiture of your own, this is a thing still has seen in Cayman-inspired dreams, but has never known to have occurred. To wear the body of another as your own is a complete shift of realities that comes with numerous, unpredictable complications. Manipulating Kohler's dreams and desires with a subtlety and refinement that bordered on art demanded nothing of still. At any time, he could withdraw from Kohler's mind. Now there is no off switch, no way to remove himself from a constant exposure to the physical world as experienced through the map of organic routine that is the mature physical body of Rafe Kohler. Worst of all, from this point on, still is in a race for his own life. Kohler's body is a short walker. This identity is defined by a physical presence with 40 years of ingrained habit, injury, and use engraved on it. It wears shoes which feel alien. There's no way for Still to decipher or interpret his experience of clothes and shoes beyond the mundane, the actual physical contact with the world that he is used to seeing only through the removed filter of a remote operator comes as a constant nerve-wracking shock to the system. The body is programmed to die young. It has habits attached to it. The man was a chain smoker exercised little if at all, slept little, ate miserably and fitfully, and was a vegetarian? On top of that, his new home seems to have had an itinerant interest in morphine. Still realized that he could modify all of these compulsive behaviors, alter this body's taste to reflect his own, but it would take time. And going through drug withdrawals, reactions to a new diet, these are all massive sources of irritation for the new tenant. And no matter how well and seamlessly he adapts the color identity to his needs, this body has a limited warranty. It is clear that without success in the new lab, there will be no amati. And even assuming all goes as planned in that program, there is the other thing. The ritual requires the blood of innocence. Friday, 13.40, GMT minus 8. Rain. Still stands, arms outstretched, and drinks in the heavens. 
Within the body that was Rafe Kohler, a conflicting surge of emotional reaction to the soaking pulls like a tide, unable to make up its mind whether to rush ashore or ebb. Rafe hated getting wet, but still was born to bathe in the sky-draining deluges common to the Amazon. Standing alongside the battered land cruiser in one of the intestinal convolutions of canyon that segregates Oregon's cascades, the sorcerer draws in a deep breath. Moist air saturates his lungs. The biting twinge of cedar and fir invade his nostrils as a sleet-sweeping wind pushes the chill of coastal ridges deep into his muscles. Still exults in his dominance, his practical ownership of this new body. He is, in every sense, arrived in the new world. Of course there are drawbacks, unexpected aspects of this new habitation that he has not anticipated. Worst among them is the lingering presence of the Kohler aura, shudders of revulsion, preference and taste, the lingering bias of perception that personifies the underlayment that is Kohler, occasionally emerge from the depths of still, bursting into an otherwise placid surface. Corporeal exchange is an extremely new experience for still. Attachment, the ability to invade and take over the mind of another to subordinate that person's will, these are well-known shamanic practices accepted among the Yapo, San Pedro, and Ayahuasca users of the Amazon as commonplace realities. But to actually invade the body of another, fully displacing that persona and taking up residence in that new body as a result of the forfeiture of your own? This is a thing still has seen in Cayman-inspired dreams, but has never known to have occurred. To wear the body of another as your own is a complete shift of realities that comes with numerous, unpredictable complications. Manipulating Kohler's dreams and desires with a subtlety and refinement that bordered on art demanded nothing of still. At any time, he could withdraw from Kohler's mind. Now there is no off switch, no way to remove himself from a constant exposure to the physical world as experienced through the map of organic routine that is the mature physical body of Rafe Kohler. Worst of all, from this point on, still is in a race for his own life. Kohler's body is a short walker. This identity is defined by a physical presence with 40 years of ingrained habit, injury, and use engraved on it. It wears shoes which feel alien. There's no way for Still to decipher or interpret his experience of clothes and shoes beyond the mundane, the actual physical contact with the world that he is used to seeing only through the removed filter of a remote operator comes as a constant nerve-wracking shock to the system. The body is programmed to die young. It has habits attached to it. The man was a chain smoker, exercised little if at all, slept little, ate miserably and fitfully, and was a vegetarian? On top of that, his new home seems to have had an itinerant interest in morphine. Still realized that he could modify all of these compulsive behaviors, alter this body's taste to reflect his own, but it would take time and going through drug withdrawals, reactions to a new diet, these are all massive sources of irritation for the new tenant. And no matter how well and seamlessly he adapts the color identity to his needs, this body has a limited warranty. It is clear that without success in the new lab, there will be no amati. And even assuming all goes as planned in that program, 
there is the other thing. The ritual requires the blood of innocence. We will be back next week with Chapter 19 of Criminal Magic. Please join us. And if you're enjoying our stories and podcast, please leave a rating and review. See you next time.